Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you ready? Hey guys, come on, bring it in. Welcome back to the podcast dedicated to the most precious human pastime. I sit down with friends, idols, and inspirations of mine to shoot the breeze about music, life, family, food, whatever. I'm Gregory Porter, and this is The Hang. It happened so rapidly. I was working in an office one week, and I was on the cover of The Melody Maker, which was the weekly newspaper, getting arrested. So, you know, I, I got right into it right away. <laughs> Get ready for a journey through music like no other. Kind of in rock and roll, you're not trying to do that. You're not trying to help other people. Usually you're trying to knock them out of the way, you know. <laughs> it's a treat to bring you Elvis Costello. All those great voices that we value in recorded music came from somebody having the courage to stay out there on a bus 300 days a year playing their music in a way we can never, ever imagine. So here, sit back, grab a drink, and let's do this. Come on. Hey, what's up? Uh, today we are hanging with the musically, stylistically, soulfully, uh, stylish brother in music, Elvis Costello. And uh, where are we talking to you from? I am, uh, I'm speaking from home in Vancouver. I'm Vancouver. Wow. I've been here since I uh, was... Forced to curtail my last tour, we played the uh, we played Manchester, and I saw a few holes in a sold out crowd where people had not come to the show. By the next night, there were whole rows and apparently sold out Hammersmith Apollo. Yeah, and some of my friends rang me and said, "You know what? I don't know. Feel so good about coming to a, a sitting in a crowded theatre." Yeah, they'd been looking for excuses to get away from me for years, but now they had a. <laughs> uh, so that was. And, you know, that was, I woke up the next morning and I was waiting for somebody to call it, you know, presumably the government, and they didn't seem yeah. ready to do that. So uh, we we did have to let go those last three shows and come home, and, and I've been here ever since. Where, where were you when all this unraveled? Were you working? I was in Germany. Listen to this. My, um, my tour manager, Tati, is a, you know, it's really up upstanding straight straight laced uh german guy we were touring in germany and i and this was the essentially the beginning of my tour so we were we were booked out to you know for a year and um he he said oh don't worry about it this this thing is is nothing there's no way they're going to cancel your tour <laughs> this was at the beginning of the show and i said i don't know i'm hearing a lot of strange stuff in the news he's like man come on <laughs> what are you talking about and um during intermission of my show i came up the stage <laughs> and he said he said um they've canceled it's over <laughs> they've canceled the tour and then you had to go back on and do the rest of the show <laughs> yeah. oh. wow so you're saying this is the beginning of a pandemic after this, after this next half of the show, I've canceled. So I was like, the, the next half of the show was, second half of the show was surreal. So I sang the last song of uh, the, the, the encore. I sang it with like, I don't, you know, you know how you say, you know how you hug and kiss somebody when you don't know if you're going to see them again? Yeah. That's, that's how it felt. It, that's how it felt. So it was. Uh, well, well, get get this. This is our. Our we we come off, you know, and still thinking we were going to go on and play those last three shows, but something in my mind told me in the back of my head that this could be it. Yeah, uh, I hadn't said that to anybody out loud because I didn't want to. I wanted us to go to that London show. You know, London show. You really want to hit it. 
Right. And I said, okay, guys, you know, let's, let's, let's treat this moment with a sense of humor. We'll go out and we'll close the show as we often do with uh, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding. But before yeah. that, we're going to play an old song of mine from 1990, Hurry Down Doomsday, The Bugs Are Taking Over. <laughs> And you know, now I would never play that song because it would be in terribly bad taste. But, uh, you know, at that moment, it, it seemed like we got to scare away these ghosts. You know, we, we should yeah. be in an act of defiance. And we played it. We don't have to often play that tune. And yeah. I could see some people in, in the front row going, yeah, 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 I get it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't seem like very funny now, you know. Uh, <laughs> But at that point, we were still sort of, people were still saying, this is just a drop of, drop of arsenic in the ocean. You know, you couldn't imagine it would, it would be that way. And, right. and still, it's very difficult when so many people say such conflicting things, and then they start to yeah. use them to, like everything, to divide us yeah. still more than we already are, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's where we come in as the glue to, to bring us back together with some music, you know. I, I, I quite like it, actually, when... Um, when I'm able to to uh, somehow in the lyric, you know, attract uh, somebody who's very conservative and who is uh, quite uh, liberal, mm-hmm. and the people in the middle of the row, I like it when I can find that common ground of of you know the way you can do that is by singing about mama, you know, or something like that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> everybody loves. You're mama. not going to get too many people to. You know, sort of like make a partisan division on mother. You know, that's the <laughs> although depends. You know, isn't it shocking? You know, this is yeah. a new era. But, but I know what you mean, and and I mean, I am working. I've been working for five years on a musical uh, adaptation of a story from from the nineteen fifties called A Face in the Crowd, and that's um, the story of a kind of a hillbilly guy who's discovered in jail. And this radio producer goes in to interview the prisoners, you know, a little bit of like human interest story. She discovers this guy who's got a silver tongue and a line of nonsensical kind of myth-making. And she thinks that he's going to be a sensation on the, on the radio. And she's right. In the course of the story, he becomes more and more successful, gets into television. Then he starts to get the idea that he really can tell people what to think. Well, you know, of course... When people um, see a president who's been a reality show host, uh, they're bound to make a comparison. But I kept saying to my colleagues, we must try our best to have this show be played in the red states and the blue states because yeah. warning is not so much about this guy, but it's what the, the thing is called the face in the crowd. It's the, it's the dark heart of the crowd, what, what, what people like that a demagogue or, 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 or a, um, a, a, a snake oil salesman <clears throat> tricks out of the person, tricks out of the secret heart, you know, they tricks yeah. out those, those wicked things and the fear. And the fear really is, is the main thing is like, if you can make people fearful, you can divide them yeah. and yeah. control them. And yeah. I'm not saying that about, you know, specifically with reference to what's going on now. Yeah. We, you have to decide what that is for yourself. But in our story, I said, don't make it be about this man. Don't make it be about this moment. Make it for all time. Because when the story was first written, it's in the 1950s, the man who wrote the story originally couldn't imagine the future. He couldn't imagine Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, let alone the president now. Yeah. You have to make it about the ability of the media and the heart of the crowd to create a monster. Yeah. Without the crowd... It's just an act. Yeah. Wow. Just as we are up on the stage, if there's nobody there, we're singing to ourselves. Right. It's just a rehearsal. Right? These things have happened before. These words have been used before. And the idea that, uh, that we, in, in, in my country we have a president who doesn't understand the power of words as, as though they are powerful as... A flamethrower. He doesn't understand that. So I'll just use these words in order to put people in fear, and that'll get me the votes. Meanwhile, 30 years later, after you are gone, we'll still be dealing with that fire that you started. Yeah, you know, there's right. some things I thought that we put to bed, and it's, it's still 
and he he's he's encouraged it and 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 re rejuvenated it and so i'm I'm vexed about that, but again, I, th I think my, my, my yes, sir, we have other ways to, to to fight back and put positive energy out into the air. We can do it in music. We can do it in art. You just uh, mentioned a a uh, a way of communicating, and I was going to ask you about it. Mm. Aside from this project that you just mentioned, have you done mm. theater before? Because uh, because your music is so cinematic in a way that you really paint a picture. Your storyteller is, is is what you are, and then we're gonna get to the roots of where that came from. But yeah, well, it's, the 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 answer to that is I I haven't realized any of the the attempts to put something on the stage. I think this would be about the seventh show that I have been asked to do. Um, none of them have been directly my idea. Uh, so I don't feel too um, frustrated that they haven't yet succeeded in being produced because every occasion is an opportunity to write a song. You know, um, I would be invited to, uh, I was asked to write a musical about the Berkeley Radicals in the 60s. And I said to the producers, I could write these songs, but really what the song you're describing in the rough uh, outline is White Rabbit. By Jefferson Airplane. You you need that, and you need. <laughs> I want to take you high by Sly and the Family Stone and Ball of Confusion. They're the three songs that you're asking me to write another song that does the same thing as that. You know, that's pretty tough. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> some others have been really more fortunate. They've given me the opportunity to write some songs. I worked twenty years ago on a record with Bert Bacharach. We wrote an album together, and then somebody came to us and wanted to make that into a musical, a stage musical. So, of course, the story required more songs. So, guess what? We get to write another 10 songs. Now, that musical has never been produced, but am I sorry? No, because I have 10 more songs I wrote with Burt Bacharach. How great is that? You know, right. <laughs> you have to take what you're given. You know, this time, yeah. I think this one will get there. It would have been opening in October were, were it not for the fact that no theater is open right now. And um, we are, you know, I'm working right now with the my, my cohorts and the the co-writer, director, the cast, we are kind of, you know, we're doing things like this next month. Yeah. And we will move it on and we'll be ready to go. We'll be at the stage door the, the first time they let us do it, you know, but, it, but right now we're yeah. patient. Yeah. Wow, that's really, really something. Where, where um, let's talk about your, your beginnings. You're a multi-instrumentalist, yes? I wouldn't really lay claim to that. I, I, I play the guitar and I can compose on the piano, but I can't, I never took any lessons, so I'm self-taught. Mm -hmm. And you, you um, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of West London, but my family was from Liverpool, so my time was divided before I went to school between those two places. I, I spent a lot of time in Birkenhead before I went to school, and I spent my school holidays often with my grandmother on Merseyside. Uh, then in 1970, after my parents had separated, my mother and I went to live in Liverpool for my last two years. So I'm sort of claimed by both cities, depending. If I do a good show in Liverpool, they say, he's one of us. If I do a bad show, they say, oh, that Southern guy, we never liked him anyway. You know? <laughs> but mostly I feel like because my family is from either side of the Mersey, that feels like the hometown. Yeah. You know, and to some degree, my father's family comes from Ireland, so I have that feeling of we came from somewhere. Yeah. My great-grandfather came like a lot of people did from Ireland. Uh, you know, a lot of people went to America, uh, you know, to get a new life. He only went as far as Liverpool, you know, so that's where we, <laughs> that's where we are. So there's, there's that feeling as well, you know. like we, we, Most of us, that's why I think I find it very hard to understand what a short memory people have when it comes to, you know, putting down the person who's coming into the country looking for the new life because, you know, their grandparents or parents in some cases just did that same thing. You know? Yeah. We, 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 in, in, in terms of human existence, you have been here for, for about 20 seconds. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. We are all brand new, you know, on this thing. Yeah. Um, you, uh, where did you get your love for music? Was somebody playing that music? in the house or was it uh, very much friend? yeah well my mother you know her first job was uh, was in record retail 
she, you know, that's what she was interested in. And her mother took her and got her a job in, uh, in the main records shop in Liverpool. And that was a shop that, that sold musical instruments. And of course, in those days, the hit parade was sheet music as well as records. So they, it, it gave you a real understanding of the music. You had to know the catalogue. There was no computer to look it up on, you know. She met my father across the, the, the counter of a, of a record shop because he was a local musician. Uh, he came out of the uh, Air Force uh, playing the trumpet. His father had been a ship's musician in the 20s and come to New York as a bandsman for the White Star Line. He himself was an orphan, my grandfather, so he had learned to play the trumpet in the orphanage and was in the army from the age of 12. Um, my, grand my father, you know, and his father argued about whether you should play with the dots in front of you. You know, my grandfather was really wedded to the printed page and music. My father heard Dizzy Gillespie and that was the end of it. He wanted to take off into outer space, you know, and uh, <laughs> there weren't too many people playing bebop in Birkenhead in 1948. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was like something you could get punched for doing, you know, because uh, people's idea of jazz was uh, from the model of New Orleans jazz and the traditional jazz, as they called it in England, was based on the model of Louis Armstrong and General Morton, yeah. and they didn't want to go from people playing these these uh, advanced harmonies, you know. Yeah, and I have no idea how good my dad was because there's no recordings, but he was passionate about it. And he and my mother ran jazz clubs. Wow, and it sounds very kind of sophisticated, but this is like hiring a room at the back of a pub to play the music <laughs> you love. I mean, it's a localized, almost evangelical pursuit. Yeah, and they proceeded with that and went to London and made their life down there. Uh, my father, when I came along, they got married, and when I came along, my dad came to that conclusion, a lot of jazz musicians do, there's no money in this, and he, he could So he took a job with a commercial dance band, and that's where he spent my, my youth. Wow. So my dad's um, daily job was to go to the dance hall in the evening. When, when most parents, most fathers were coming home, my father was going to the Hammersmith Palais to sing with the dance band or he was going to the radio station, uh, going to the radio theater to sing on the BBC. Okay. That's what, that was my view of pop music. I heard pop music filtered through all of that. He would bring home yeah. stack of sheet music and, and, and 45s and learn that week's releases. And no matter how crazy that sounds, they, he was singing, <laughs> please, please me. And, you know, reach out and I'll be there and substitute by the who. I mean, they just did what was ever in the charts, however unlikely that might seem, you know? Yeah. And I was very lucky that my father was the, of the three vocalists with the band, my father was the versatile one who could adapt his voice to all these very different types of songs. So I had wow. the benefit of many, many more records than my friends could get their hands on, you know? That is really amazing. It was, yeah, in a way, you're growing up in in the the record store. If he's he's bringing yeah. all the music. Well, my mother went back to work and and also worked in the shop again. So the record shop seemed like a place of work as well. And so I was familiar with both places, like the radio theater. I saw them rehearse, and I saw that transformation that not many people see from people coming in in their day clothes and running through the music, mm -hmm. and then even on the radio. You know, I, I remember seeing Gino Washington and the Ram Jam Band be a guest on this show. Gino did three songs and he wore a different color suit for each one. And he was on the radio, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, that's showmanship, you know, that sticks with you when you, when you're about you know, 12 or 13, you kind of go, wow, that's, that's pretty good. You changed the color of the suit to be on the radio, you know? And when did you come to, to, you came to the States first or? I, I came to the States. I, I, I mean, I, I, because my father was a, was a professional musician I, I wasn't sure that was for me. I saw what, you know, the path of life my parents have parted. I, I maybe thought that maybe that life is kind of destructive in some way. When I was a young, you know, rather earnest teenager, I loved music so much. I, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to try and make a living doing it. I knew I was going to be doing it for most of my life, but I wasn't sure because I didn't have the face for television. I didn't even have the face for radio. You know, I mean, it's like... A, <laughs> Uh, I didn't feel confident. Uh, I thought I might be a songwriter. That's what I wanted to be. And then eventually I got to make a record, um, having played in a few bands and played in on my own in clubs, you know. And uh, next thing I know, I'm going to America for the first time, 1977. Uh, yeah. And 
you know, it's uh, they say, well, they want they want to, they want you to come. And I had a band by then. We put together the attractions. It happened so rapidly. I was working in an office one week, and I was on the cover of the Melody Maker, which was the weekly newspaper. Yeah, I was on the cover of that newspaper the next week, getting arrested out of publicity <laughs> stuff. So you know, I, I I got right into it right away. <laughs> That, that is wonderful. It's a respectable job to getting arrested the first week. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but this is the music. The music is is absolutely in in your DNA, and yeah. from from hearing jazz, a person who listens to jazz, I suspect, is not afraid of the blues and not afraid of you know it, really any genre of music. This this. Uh, coming I mean, from what, let, me, let me ask you this in return is like is there is there music that you heard that is there one piece of music that really sticks out that like you said now that is come out of the general fabric of all music that's speaking to me there's the direction i'm going is there one piece for you that didn't was that switch turning on or is it all of it um this is the funny thing is i never understood genre when I was a kid in the 70s, mid-70s. I was born in 71, so late 70s is when I was getting my musical understanding. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand genre. I knew that there were some jazz singers that my mother had. They did certain things that gospel singers did. And I remember putting it all together. Yeah. I remember the, the utterances of Stevie Wonder. I could hear uh, some of that in Mahalia Jackson. Now, Stevie Wonder was the music of my older brothers. Yet, Mahalia Jackson and Nat King Cole was the music of my mother. And so, I never separated those three. And I happened to be listening to a radio station that would play... Stevie Wonder, and then Horace Silver's song for my father, and then you know, it it, yeah. it was it was mixed like that. When I first went to America, there were a few stations where I could go into the record library, and they'd say pick anything for the to play for the next hour, and I'd play a record of Groucho Marx singing, and then play Howlin' Wolf, and then play a punk <laughs> record. You know, I mean, they didn't they didn't care. The next time I tried to do that, they said, "No, we can't play that, and that's not in the format." And I said, "Well, we've always got out of it now, you know." <laughs> so I find I found myself gravitating towards that thing, uh, that thing generally that that originates uh, from uh, the Black American Church was that soulful sound, and wherever I could find it, um, whether it was in rock, whether it was in country. Because, you know, I know you, George Jones was just straight up soulful. That's right. Willie Nelson is just straight up soulful, you know. And and it, it doesn't have to come from a place. It means that, guess what? We all, we all have soul. <laughs> that, that happens, doesn't it, when you find a record? I had two records when I was a kid, a teenager. I had uh, Never Loved the Man, Aretha's first uh, Atlantic record. Yeah. And that has... This, uh, the same song on it as the Flying Burrito Brothers recorded with Graham Parsons that came out around the same time. And one is a country record and one is a, one is an R&B record. And you're going, yeah, but they're the same, aren't they? You know, they're the same feeling. They're both singing it with this feeling. In fact, this guy is singing it about a woman, do right woman. He's singing, a, a guy singing do right woman. It's <laughs> even stranger, you know, that a guy is singing, sticking up with the woman in the song and saying, you better treat her right. Because an awful lot of songs didn't say that, you know, they they yeah. like, I mistreat this girl, you know. It was like, right. <laughs> I on my head, and then you know, obviously Aretha had the voice that made it more, you know, like just irresistible, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. It's strange though when you find the blueprint. Like I, I realized that everything I learned about uh, six, eight, and three, four came from that one album. Came from Aretha <laughs> record because nearly every song, hardly any of the songs were in four. You know, right. most people say, well, the music you like, it's all in four. No, it's not, because I that record, I just played it over and over till it felt natural for me to play in six and, and, and three and eight and 12, eight, you know? Hey, guys, you're listening to The Hang. Hit subscribe or follow on your podcast thingamajig of choice 
to get every episode of The Hang fresh off the presses. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So all of this, this rich heritage of music that you're, that you're listening to and even immer- immersed in with your, with your mother and father uh, can explain your... Your, your, in a way, your genrelessness. In a way, I, if, if that's okay with you, do you feel like your, your? I, I feel like I can listen to your music. First of all, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I'm a deal with some of your music because those lyrics are killing. But, but, you know, it's rock. It's singer songwriter. Some of it is is country. And and I asked about your theatrical experience because the stories are so strong. It, it, it feels like this could be on stage and plus your voice does that. You, you have the voice of, uh, of, uh, and then when I'm ask you, how do you, would you describe your voice? You have the voice of every man, I, you know, do you feel like that's part of your success, but how would you, you describe your music and your voice? I honestly, Never, never analyze it. When I hear you sing, and I go, I go well, there's somebody that you would clear, you would hear them singing. You go, that's a guy. That guy can sing. You know, like you hear people like that. You just immediately go, well, that guy's got that instrument of a voice. What he chooses to do with it now is that's a different thing. Yeah. You hear plenty of people. I'm sure you know the people with a lot of technique who are still not saying anything really. You know, and maybe <laughs> the technique gets in the way of them saying something. I always, and I got when I was. Uh, a kid and I first started to sing along with the records. I never sang because my dad wasn't in the house all the time. I, I, although I heard him singing in the front room, I never tried to sing like him. He was mostly singing other people's songs. So I never really knew what his voice actually sounded like. He'd never really sang in his own voice. He was always taking up somebody else's style. Yeah. And I suppose I learned a little bit of how to imitate people and I could, yeah. Thought well, maybe if I push my voice a little bit, I can get that nasal sound like John Lennon. I could do that maybe a little bit, and my voice is in mid range. It's not super high. And then the person I really wanted to be was Levi Stubbs, and there was just no way I could sing like that. I mean, I knew that Marvin Gaye was completely beyond me. I knew Stevie was completely beyond me. But something made me think like, if I try hard enough, I could sing like (laughs) because it just seems like a go. Like straight at it, like it doesn't hold back. And maybe if I don't hold back, I'll sound like that. And of course, you never can sound like that. I didn't understand what it was, you know. I an awful lot of the English R and B singers in the in the beat groups that were picking up and covering songs from America, they were covering things out of New Orleans, you know, like Stevie Winwood, Joe Cocker. You can tell where their, their cues are all coming from Ray Charles, you know. Yeah. But we didn't necessarily know that because we were hearing those stars of singing as brand new to us. We didn't know all the records. Right. And the one who really was as important to me, um, although I never could sing like him, was Georgie Fame. 
Fame mm. was a was on the scene exactly the same time as the Beatles and the Small Faces, who were the other my two favorite groups. And he didn't sing like anybody else. Yeah. Until I realized who he was copying. He was copying John Hendricks <laughs> and Mose Allison. And then when I heard their records, I went, wow, Georgie's original style of singing is actually a replica of these, but he's got his own thing. Yeah. And imagine that first record, the first EP I ever owned was Fame at Last. Track one, you know, is the point of no return. That's like Goffin and King's song. Then get on the right track, you know, and then give me that wine, Lambert Hendrickson wrote. And I live the life of love, love the life of live, Willie Dixon's song, but in, done in the arrangement by Mose Allison. That is like going to college. That, those four, that's four types of, of, of American, you know, music, American, African yeah. American music at that, notwithstanding Annie Ross, um, that how would I have come across that music at the age of 12? You know, uh, there's no way I had access to the, to the original records. Had to hear somebody be the evangelist for that music, you know, and he, yeah. he was unique in that he took his cues from this kind of cool style of singing, like, like John Hendricks, you know, very, very Jossie. And that, that I'm forever grateful because he opened the door of things and it connected, connected my understanding of, uh, this is a young man who played the Hammond organ, you know, who was 21 when I was 12, 13. Uh -huh. And it connected the, the music that he was singing to the records that my parents had, jazz records, you know, the, the, that when, when he started singing Count Basie songs, I went, ah, but that's stuff my folks like, you know, that's that. So I can like that too, you know, that then. And then the next thing, all those mysterious bebop records that just sounded like completely crazy when I was a really little kid, they make sense to me, you know. Then you find the voice, the instrumental voices that, that move you. You know, once I heard Billie Holiday, then I heard Lester Young, you know, and so it goes, you know. So Yeah. The, I, I, you, you just talked about something, a, a transitional artist that can take the parents' music to to the child. I think of, um, you think of like an artist like Donny Hathaway, who can take a song like, so Nat, Nat King Cole was, you know, you, you could call it strangely, Nat King Cole was one of my idols as a child. So was uh, Stevie Wonder and uh, Michael Jackson. But I had a separate place for Nat King Cole, but I needed somebody to, to bridge that, that divide for me to these modern, more modern artists. And, and I heard Donny Hathaway singing, uh, for all we know, I, I had, yeah, I was maybe <laughs> nine listening to Nat King Cole's version for all we know. We may never meet again before you go. You know, it's beautiful. But, but then Donny Hathaway came. He took that song and he, he's an archetype of, I'm not, I don't want to say he's an archetype of, of he's an archetype of, the, of a black male church voice, mm. which I was steeped in. And so when I heard, for all we know, this was just praise and worship service where the soloist starts to sing. And I was like, this is the, this is the bridge. This is the bridge from Nat King Cole to the modern singers that I like. Donny Hathaway was that for me that brought the, some of those songs. He, every now and then he would do uh, some, some, uh, standards of uh, Marvin Gaye as well. Mm -hmm. But they brought those standards. They brought Nat King Cole's era to the modern uh, era of singers singing those uh, standards. But don't you, don't you, don't you hear it sometimes now? I mean, it's curious because there's, in my view, there's no more influential singer for better or for worse in the way that some times people copy him than Stevie. Like, Everybody wants to be like that. Just don't try this, kids. Don't try this at home. You know, there's so many people that try to do what he does and, and fail. <clears throat> but I see, I was at a, a concert where they, there was an award given to Lionel Richie. And uh, 
Lionel came out and sat at the piano and he didn't have his band. He was just playing at the piano. And he turned sideways to the audience and started singing one of his big hits. And I went, it never occurred to me how much Nat Cole was in your delivery. Like everything about him was Nat Cole. Like it just looked like you could just take Lionel that picture and put him into one of the old TV shows, <laughs> Nat Cole, you know? Um, I mean, obviously I live in, I live in a house with somebody who loves Nat Cole, you know? I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, for, it's very strange that the people assume that Diana and I must have very different tastes. But of course, because I grew up with with that with that understanding of these uh, first record I ever really responded to was a Sinatra record. You know, long before I, my parents were not listening to early rock and roll. I didn't even hear Elvis Presley until he was making bad records. <laughs> I don't even ever remember hearing him. I remember my, the first Elvis Presley record that I remember hearing was It's Now or Never, which I didn't like. It sounded to me like opera. Mm. And I did, at that age, I didn't like opera, you know. But uh, Little Richard, on the other hand, uh, he made records in, you know, he made a record that was a hit in England, Bama Lama, Bama Lou. And then I went back and heard all the other ones. And of course, the Beatles played his song. So that made, that made him great. I knew the Beatles of Elvis Presley, but I couldn't understand what they thought was so great about him. And then, you know, you find it all out in the end. And then you get wise. That, that, that thing of that voice transposing it from one age to the other. I mean, I got to work with Charles Brown. I got to write a song with Charles Brown. It was a wonderful thing to get together to do. And, you know, there's somebody who everybody wanted to be. who had that style. And I, I, I remember going to see him at the Cinegrill, the Roosevelt Hotel, I guess it was in the early 90s and he had made a comeback show and that's where he had made his name in the 40s and everybody wanted to be like him. And then he's up there at the piano singing Black Knight and Bad Whiskey and all these songs and he'd go, no wonder everybody wanted to be this guy. Yeah. I mean, and you can hear the interaction between him and, and Nat Cole. You know, they're all happening around the same time in the trio format, you know. Yeah, but listen... You listen to those early recordings of Ray Charles and Nat King Cole yeah. trying to be, you know, their idol. And it's so extraordinary. Yeah. You ever have a singer in your head because you do have this voice that is, you know, it sounds like a gift. You know, it, it, it is something that it's, it, you can't argue with it. You start to sing it. And you're just singing now. You kind of go, wow. I mean... Is there anybody that you, it's something that I've done, even when I can't get anything to come out that sounds like that. Do you ever have somebody in you, like a voice in your head going, sing this like, sing this like whoever, you know, I, I sometimes have, sing this like Dusty Springfield in my head. I'll never sound <laughs> like her, but maybe I'll approach that phrase differently because I'm thinking that in a split second. Oh, absolutely. And they change. Sometimes uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Some, sometimes when it's something uh, more social, hmm. it'll be Abby Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, sometimes if, if it's uh, just beautiful and eloquent, it's Nat. Sometimes if, it's, if I'm going to church, it's, it's, it's Donnie. And I'm not trying to, to copy them. I'm, I'm thinking of them. I'm considering them when I step to the microphone. And, and this is what's awesome about the time in which we live now. Because, you know, Nat had to deal with what he had heard. Um, uh, Charles Brown had to deal with what he had heard in order before he stepped to. Uh, but now we've, we've, we've had these masters and these greats that we can lean on and, 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 and I, in a way uh, ask questions to before we, we start to, to tell our story, but uh, musically. But, but go ahead, you were... No, no, that, I, that is a beautiful way to express it because I say, you know, I, I sometimes when I sing backgrounds on my own records, I'll just, and I'm singing falsetto, I'll just put vibrato into the end of the note, you know, a little bit like, you know, now I won't ever sound like Curtis Mayfield, but just putting that in, that little vibrato on the end of the note will make the vocal group go like this. You create this resonance with your own voice. And you go, how did I get the idea of doing that? That's one tiny detail of a singer who I could never, if you said your life depends on singing like this person, you could never, ever, ever, ever do it. 
but you can learn <laughs> one tiny piece of technique. I don't even use it in the foreground. I use it in the background through choruses like this. You put it in three-part harmony or even four-part harmony, and it creates a sort of siren effect. And that is, you know, that's the kind of detail that you notice when you spend an unhealthy amount of time listening to records. You know, you yeah. notice these little mannerisms that singers have about the way they enunciate. Nat Cole enunciated certain words almost with an English accent. Yeah. Lennon said the word no, almost like, <laughs> like, a, like a school master or mistress disappearing. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny listen to the way he sings certain o sounds he really yeah. <laughs> it all becomes part and you it if you if you listen hard enough it becomes unselfconscious with somebody with the ability to turn on colors in their voice which we've been working for the last couple of years with a couple of incredible singers, uh, Brianna Lee and, and Kitten Kuroi. And when we rehearse the arrangements, they can, you know, they can say, I could sing it like this or I could sing it like this. And I'm going, you can choose. <laughs> you know, I just <laughs> open my head and I just have to take what comes out. You know? <laughs> and work the, you know, I produced a, a, a classical singer doing a, a repertoire of contemporary song. Same thing. She can choose where she opens the voice up. I, I don't yeah. have that. You know, so fascinates me. But you, you have for me a voice that, um, what I said, and I mean it in the highest uh, uh, sense. Uh, the every man a voice. Now, now, this you could take this so <laughs> wrong. Listen to me. My favorite time of of to sing. The favorite time that for my voice is when I first wake up. I feel like there's an honesty there. And there's like, um, I love it when I like get a song idea, when I just, you know, pop out of, bit, out of bed, when I'm at some hotel somewhere in Mumbabutu. And, 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 and I start to, you know, sing the melody that I, that I have. Um, there, there's an honesty in your voice. And it's, like, it's almost like uh, you have uh, every, every man honesty. Uh, when you lay, when you lay out a lyric, and um, so that was the first thing that, that caught me about your voice. I think one of my favorite uh, songs of yours is maybe it, it, there's there's a bunch of them, but but uh, is it I write the book? Am I saying yeah, I write the book? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's cool. It's cool storytelling, and there's a you know my question is in terms of your your glasses your hat, your stage style, and your voice. How do you come to who you are? Is it, is it, uh, does it, does it happen slowly? Do you find your, or, or, or just like you said, this is the way it comes out. <laughs> kind of the way it comes out, but then after a while, of course, you know, I, I, I'll say it in shorthand. I mean, when I started, I knew a lot of other music than I played on my first record. I, 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 I didn't study anything. <clears throat> I didn't take formal lessons on anything. I was playing the guitar from 13 to, you know, when I started to perform regularly in public and from the age of 15, 16, I think. Uh, I thought it was about something from about 18 onwards. But it took till I was 21 to get to do anything that, you know, was any record of, to speak of. Um, then, then sort of punk came along and just as I was trying to get these songs and I had very intimate songs. When you're playing in your bedroom, you're singing kind of to the wall, you know, you're not imagining a room or, or an audience on radio or a record. And I realized I had to step it up. I had to step up dynamically. And I went playing clubs when you need to get attention. I knew I could, I had a loud voice if I wanted to have. And I sort of like, okay, I'm going to narrow the range of subjects and I'm going to make, shorter statements in the song and I don't need any warmth in my voice to speak of just need attitude and we made those first couple of records pretty much like that there's only a couple of moments where there was any suggestion I could sing an extended line at all the minute I got a few records in then I wanted to you know I didn't want to get stuck just with this angry sort of facade because it was something I'd chosen to express but I had a lot of other ideas then when you start to sing longer longer breath melodies, 
then my natural voice came out and I started to sing with, you know, use the vibrato as a color. I mean, to some degree, it's like everybody, they have little quirks about the body. My breathing is a certain way. I, I, I start slow and can't stop then, you know, when I get going, I'm like long distance, <laughs> I'm not a sprinter, you know. Um, I loved singers that had that warmth of, of, of tone, like Dusty, like Chrissy Hind, who was a contemporary of mine, you know, who used slow vibrato to kind of, and she's playing over, you know, a, a rock and roll band. I thought you can have the melody and the rock and roll then, you know, yeah. that opened it up. And, and then I started to listen, think about how can I make my credible version without putting on a disguise to sing like all the, to sing in the style of people whose music I, that, you know, when I was a, you know, literally 14 year old, you, all you needed to have a party was like Motown Chartbusters Volume 3 and Tighten Up Volume 2, the Rocksteady Collection. You just need those two records. If you yeah. have What Is Soul on Atlantic as well, you had a complete, that's, that's enough. You just play those round and round, that's an evening, you know. Yeah. I didn't know every other record because how, how would I know them? That was, we didn't have any radio stations that played that music. You know, I went to America. I came back with a whole suitcase full of secondhand records, you know, whole <laughs> albums by people that I knew one song by, you know. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. It was an explosion. And that first time in America, it was like, not only did I see musicians for real myself, you know, yeah. everybody from Iggy Pop to Earl King, you know. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like a magical chaotic, you know, lots of misadventures, lots of bad behavior, but, you know, yeah. in a pocket, like a sort of very, very fast education. Yeah. It's something that had been filtered through the BBC and Radio Luxembourg and the Pirate Radio up until then. And what, what records I could afford through pocket money, you know. And suddenly, a little bit of money I made, I spent every penny I had on those first tours on records yeah. and second-hand clothes. Wow. <laughs> secondhand clothes that we thought made us look like the Temptations or something. You know, we get like a shiny secondhand store. I, I look like David Ruffin. No, you don't really. You look stupid. But, you know, <laughs> that was, I that's it. another thing I really remember. I, you know, you think about bands in England used to do steps and move their guitars in time, like the Shadows. Uh-huh. Then like one week, Ready, Steady, Go had the Motown review come on. Uh-huh. And everybody just sat and went... <laughs> You know, everybody had like choreography and everybody was perfectly dressed. And then the next week it was back to a bunch of, you know, lumpy <laughs> lads from outside of Manchester, you know, with the hairbrush forward to look like the Beatles. It wasn't quite the same thing. Because <laughs> there was so much discipline in that way. I didn't even understand where it had come from, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, this is, yeah, I mean, this, this is, you know, we're so lucky to have, have experienced um, all of this, this, this greatness. And now we can, we can go back to it. And, and, and um, I, this is, this is what I think. I think we've seen greatness and there's so much in a way that should be expected of us. I'm, I'm, I don't want to sound like a, like a, like a, oh, all the good music has passed. But I think knowing greatness, I feel like like the, the modern singers should should be, you know, I, I, we should we should we should be worried about our standards, you know, slipping because, uh, yeah. you know, if we saw Stevie, you know, man. <laughs> I, I said to somebody once, I want a compilation of all the gala appearances where Stevie comes on and people try to sort of out-sing him. <laughs> and he, he always seems so generous. You know, there's various people that have that moment, okay, I'm really going to show him what I can do. And go, oh, please don't do that. You know, it's like somebody getting into the ring with the champ and going, yeah, I could probably punch him up if I really wanted to. No, I wouldn't do that if I were you. You know, he just, he just steps up that other gear and you go, well, he's just gone. You can't go where he goes, ever. <laughs> In some ways, on some of those spontaneous performances, he lets go. He goes to a place that he doesn't even go to on his own records. I mean, I've heard yeah. it time and time again. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I've been in the room when he's done it, and it's been like, oh, my God, that is just like, yeah. that's, yeah, nobody can sing like that. It's crazy. Yeah. You know? yeah. But, you know, every night we have those talent shows that make people show off in music except instead of going inside and feeling that shame because they technically can sing, 
but they have no curiosity or humility about what's in the song. Yeah. They, they've, been, they've taken the wrong cue from brilliant technical singers. That's my point. Would, would you make it to the next week? Would you even, make it? I wouldn't even make it to the first show. <laughs> I would open my mouth and go, next. I'd get three lumpwood notes in, gong, you know. No, right, right, right. And so, I mean, you know, uh, the idea that you have to 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 blast to the back of of the room every time. Yes, it's nice to have that in your voice. It's nice to have, you know, even the 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 the, the rock sound in your in, in in or whatever. But the idea that to to pull it back and and to sing with. Uh, um, Humility and vulnerability is also a thing, but and you can't get away with it on 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 those shows. And even true. though if it's they true. call me to be a judge, I'll be one. <laughs> it's true of instrumentalists too. I remember one night I was in uh, Dizzy's in New York. It was after a benefit that we went to put together for Katrina, so it was that night, and there was a late night session, and one after another pianists got up and did their sort of like display piece, you know, and there was some great music. And about an hour into the set, Ellis Masalis, Winton's father, got up and played a ballad. And I yeah. went, now do that. <laughs> you know, you can't do that. That takes a lifetime because you have to listen where not to play. And I can't, you know, I can't do that. And yeah. I'm not saying that just older musicians are better, but it is not always that the display is the thing, you know. Yeah. Um, but, so, you know, that, that gives heart. I mean, bear in mind when, the, when they invented recorded music, certain types of singer could be heard and other couldn't be. Right. So a lot of the very early recordings were the same singers just because by the freak that their voice registered on the horn. Yeah. That's why so many people with very odd voices on early records in every kind of music, it's just the one that, that, that registered on the recording medium. Then the, then the, elect, you know, the electrical recording and the microphone came in. Right. And you get... You know, you get the intimacy of Bing Crosby. Yeah, Bing Crosby. Uh, Nick, Bing Crosby and you get still yeah. people who are still from vaudeville where they're just hitting the back wall, as you say. But we still yeah. have that between the different styles. You have Al Green, you know, who can turn it up past any number you like, but also he's singing right here, you know. Yeah, right here. The entire song is with himself, you know, like weird stuff yeah. like that, where he's <laughs> just lead vocals like crazy. Nobody ever did that, you know. You um, you kind of uh, how many children do you have? Uh, 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 three. I have thirteen-year-old boys, and my and my eldest son is in his early forties. Mm-hmm. You your your boys now the household in which they they live. <laughs> Is oh man, is that unfair? <laughs> well, you have to ask them that really. I, I, I tend not to, you know, in the past I spoke of things that my elder son was listening to when he was a teenager and, and he has a, a knowledge of music that makes mine seem superficial. And he's never chosen to, to, to make a, a public sort of display of it. But I can talk to him about music in a way that I could talk to you about music. You know, we're talking from a frame of reference that's much wider than many people um, just have that, they just haven't had that experience. I, feel, I don't feel I know more than anybody else, but I know that I've heard more things than some of my friends, you know, yeah. much as I think of them as musical, appreciate music. My younger boys, of course, are growing up in a world of, of a different tempo. Um, and one of them will be mixing remixing stuff. You know, I don't even want to say what it is because I don't want to embarrass him because that might not be his interest next week. Yes. But he, you know, I, I said to Pete Thomas, our drummer, I said, you know, we use that Ableton system to trigger like additional percussion sometimes. So we don't have a percussionist. I said, Dexter just taught himself to use Ableton in three days. You know, <laughs> you have a tech guy on stage to deal with that. How come that? He's 13. How come I'm paying some guy to do that? <laughs> I don't even know how to do that because you know they are that generation that technology yes I know how this works bang you know yeah. his brother is in the other room playing a video game and it sounds like Wagner or something is coming out of the room but the music <laughs> on some of these video games is this incredible orchestral music so yeah. because of that interest he's getting an education in the sound of the orchestra even if he never writes a note of music he knows that the thing he's involved in emotionally 
is supported by. So we sat down and watched 2001 the other night because it has all this incredible vocal music as well as the Richard Strauss and the Johann Strauss. Wow, right. And, you know, you've got to hear this music as well. You've got to hear everything, everything that you can add from wherever it comes from, whatever period in time. And, you know, as you say, those there are those artists who open it up, one that leads back to another. You, you want to know why that person sings like that, listen to the person they listen to, and they're the person that they listen to. You hear the development of their style, even if it's, you know, you, you can never tell where that's going to lead you. Instrumentalists too, composers too. It's, it's essential. It's an, an education which is undervalued in music. It's kind of like, a, like in some schools, I think it's kind of about as important as the little paper doily they put under the cake stand. You know, it's like something decorative. Yeah. It's something they say they want to have, but they never can find. Because there's no obvious job at the end of it, like being a, an economist or a banker or a, working in the stock market. Uh, but to live in a world with other people, you need the arts to, to, keep, to keep it in balance. It's fine to know all that technical stuff, but you have to know this other stuff as well. You have to have all the experience that's in that music, you know, from every culture imaginable, from every time imaginable. If you're not going to study history in a formal way, you can you can hear it through music. Mm -hmm. It's right there, yeah. It's always the story of us, yeah. (laughs) Whatever your boys choose to do, they're 13 now, they're formulating their their, their selves and their interests, and whatever they choose to do, they have uh, two people in their house who are at the top of their game in what it is that they do. Two masters uh, walking around. And, and the pouring, pouring milk in this cereal. And um, that's got to be great. Um, that's got to be great to see. And so, I, I, you know, for all of the, the work that uh, your wife uh, does and, and, and even the spotlight that she's put on Nat King Cole has been just extraordinary uh, to see for me. And she's amazing. And you, Genuine curiosity, that rare thing that is, uh, she can play as you've heard her play, she can, she plays a lot more than people that only know her as a vocal, from her vocal records. They have no idea what she can do. Right. Uh, and, um, <laughs> you know, she would play, uh, well, she was a pianist before she was a singer for one thing. Uh, just as yeah. I was a songwriter before I was a singer. We both did a different thing first. Uh, so that we have in common. She was fortunate to grow up in a house where, uh, you know, everybody in her mother's family played piano for, or organ in church. Her father pl- collected jazz records, like records you, you, I mean, records you would never see, like so rare, cheap music. So her her understanding in, in, of these older styles of song is from a very youthful curiosity. And then you hear somebody, I would think that I would be right in saying that the person that transformed it was Oscar Peterson. You know, yeah. uh, she heard him at 16 and said, that's, I want to get as close to that as I can ever get, which you can't ever be him, just like you can't be Art Tatum, you know. But you can learn. And she got to play with some of the people that were playing with him, you know. Yeah. Um, Monty Alexander. Oh, amazing. Not, you know, not American, but jazz. I, I, I never really questioned her about that because she's Canadian and plays jazz. Oscar is Bayesian Montreal. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Montreal originally. And Monty is Jamaican, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, they came in and, and, you know, like I will go to see, we'll go to see Monty Alexander and we'll go to the Blue Note, see him play. And everybody's talking about jazz and Monty and I are talking about reggae records that he played. Right. <laughs> he knew, he, you know, he left Jamaica with just as the Scar records were coming in and those were all really popular in England, but Americans don't really know about them, you know. Yeah. So he got somebody to talk to about that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we we were at the uh Montreux uh, uh jazz festival and Monty uh, came backstage. You know, whatever your rider is, they they may leave you a bottle of brandy or whatever. He's like he just he stayed back there until we finished the bottle <laughs> and we and we uh we had just these great conversations, you know talking about all, you know, the people that he's seen. He's so youthful. Yeah, yeah. You, no, forget. you know what night it was? How about this for a crazy night? 
I think it was the night of the Prince tribute at Carnegie Hall. And, and I had sung Moonbeam Levels with my Rudolph, in, you know, singing in the group with me. And <laughs> I mean, Questlove typically had picked the rarest song in the whole catalog for me to sing. I had to learn this song. Never ever heard it before. Right. Mm-hmm. Sing it at Carnegie Hall. And we come out and Diana's with me. And Monty, who lives next door to Carnegie Hall, had heard we were there. And he said, come on, let's go. Let's go to Birdland. <laughs> and next thing, you know, it's same thing. We're off into the night. And I just sat there after all of that night, just listening to him talk. We went to the late set. I think it was Cedar Walton. Okay. Wow. Sat there and listened to those guys talk. And after everybody I'd been playing with at Carnegie Hall, I just wanted to sit there and say nothing. <laughs> those guys talk about everybody. You can imagine all the people that they could speak of, you know, Ray Brown, yeah. Sarah Vaughan. I mean, how are you going to have that opportunity to hear people speak with love and experience? They're not telling stories to make themselves look better than they are. They're talking about the real experience of actually working and working out the music. Yeah. And that's something that I think <clears throat> I said to Diana, don't forget to tell people all these things. She has had that great good fortune in jazz to, to actually learn and study with people, not in a schoolroom way, yeah. but from, you know, get and go and take lessons with a master accompanist like Jimmy Rolls. She took lessons with Ray Brown. I mean, she had a cassette tape of it. It's like, it's a perfect example of how a a master musician should talk to um, a younger, she was 21 when when that that happened. And he's talking about rhythm and choices and like secrets that it would take a lifetime to learn. Yeah. I mean, just to even have heard it is a privilege. Yeah, wow. You know, it's not even something you can really share because not everybody would understand what's being said. But yeah. for me to hear that she had that experience, kind of in rock and roll, you're not trying to do that. You're not trying to help other people. Usually you're trying to knock them out of the way, you know. Yeah. But over the years, I've worked in another couple of other fields, classical music. My classical music friends, they teach. They are part of passing on that knowledge. Jazz, there are mentors who bring forward the younger players. There are people... We wouldn't have some of the great musicians today had there not been Art Blakey for them to be in his band, you know. Yeah. And all the bands before that were on that model. All those great voices that we value in recorded music came from somebody having the courage to stay out there on a bus 300 days a year playing their music yeah. in a way that we can never, ever imagine. No matter who we are, where we come from, you know, we, everything is easier than it was then. You know, for yeah, the there's, there's a whole lot of reasons we don't even need to state again, but you know what I'm saying. You know? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of the things and people that have cultivated the roots in which we come from. Um, yeah, in every style, in bluegrass, and they hand it on. They hand it on. So in some ways, I've come around to thinking, not that I have anybody, any, I can't teach anybody to do what I do, but you want to talk about it and remember that we must remain thrilled by these things yeah we must value the past so we can leap forward we can't stay past you can't you can't want to recreate you can't be nostalgic i don't hear that in what you do i don't hear that in what the best of the musicians do they're always learning from the past sometimes direct contact with the people other times just through a record or a film and look at people today they've got that whole every clip that you could ever wish you know, to see somebody playing the piano or playing the saxophone or singing a song that you can never imagine. There it is. You just turn on your computer and there it is. There it is, yeah. It's in your fingertips. (laughs) (laughs) What a wonderful conversation. Just on a personal note, um, when I opened for uh, Diana uh, at the Hollywood Bowl, she gave me the most dope bottle of wine and I took my time I, I had to go to a butcher and get the best piece of meat that I could find best ribeye I could. So, I, so I grilled the ribeye and, and, and I had it with, with this wine and uh, you know I'm, I don't have the savvy to to get back to people and, and say you know thank them I'll, I'll send you the message thank you, you for that amazing she, bottle want, she, she knew that you wanted yeah, that, you, that, that you know I mean neither of us drink so we you know <laughs> you have to remember 
that other people do and and they can they they enjoy that and it's given with love you know yeah it's just beautiful i just wanted to tell you i'm i'm a little bit the same i'm a little bit forgetful to i i go oh, goodness i should have written to somebody like a month ago you know he's right back and does those things that are, that are mm-hmm. thought Mm-hmm. Man, uh, thank you for this masterclass that uh, that you've given me. Um, talking about the music, your foundation, um, your your grace extends past uh, those beautiful lyrics that you're writing and the, and those uh, those melodies that you're singing. Thank you so much. Uh, this was a real hang, man. Thank you. I hope I didn't talk too much. You you know um, you can. Man. You- Cut it out, man. <laughs> that you don't need. Uh, I can get going, and I can't. I, I can't so much. And you're talking about you say Donny Hathaway, and my mind, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm going, yeah, Donny Hathaway and and Minnie, and then a Rotary Connection. I mean, we could have gone on forever, right? You know, to, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, we could go on and on and on. Yeah. Don't get me started, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, man. Wow. So there it is. Thanks again to Elvis, and thank you for listening. Remember, feel free to share this podcast with your friends. Let's all get together on our next episode. I'm Gregory Porter, and this has been The Hang, a Cup and Nuzzle production. Music.